Cool. So here we are, uh, second week of Advent. Uh, we've got our candles here. Here, let's put this one where we can see it. They're just a little set design. There we go. There we go. That's good. Um, yeah. So it's so good to uh, good to be here. This is my favorite time of year in terms of uh, preaching and worship and and all of that. Uh, part of that for me comes out of uh, you know when I was a kid. Uh, that was sort of when I had my first encounter with Jesus. You know, when I was 17 years old, call to ministry, all that kind of stuff. So this season for me is just pregnant with God, sense of calling us to something and growing us. And as we uh, look at Advent and look at uh, the Christmas story, it's, it's one of those strange t- parts of the year where how do you find something new in a story that I've been a pastor now for, I pastored my first church when I was 21 and I'm now 45, so I've been doing Christmas sermons about that long. Um, so with a few years in there for breaks when we were at school and stuff like that, but uh, how do you find something new in it? And, uh, and for me, there's always something new and something amazing in the, atta- in the text. Uh, my heart as we go through it this time is to just look in the biblical text, in the story of Christmas, for those moments of encounter and worship. Those moments where praise breaks through the story, where worship happens in the story. What sort of revelation happened? What sort of thing happened to bring people to a place where they go from their every day experience of life and living back then uh, in Israel 2,000 years ago uh, to a place of, whoa, wait a minute, God is awesome. He's blowing me away. How does that uh, happen? And how, of course, how does that happen uh, for us? Um, In particular, in terms of connectedness this week, I'm just thinking, um, you know, God doesn't want us to just connect emotionally He doesn't want us to have a connection that's just a spiritual connection. Uh, He doesn't want us to just serve him with our bodies. And he doesn't want us to to have an experience that's just intellectual, right? Our experience with God is meant to be all of those things. And so you you even see it in the text in Matthew 22, uh, 36 to 39. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. And if you look at the original in Deuteronomy that Jesus is quoting, and there's some linguistic things that happen to make that uh, so, it says with all your strength. So there's some understanding that this way that we love God is not just meant to be uh, up here, and it's not just meant to be here, which is awesome. We kind of emphasize this a lot of the time. And it's not just meant to be with our obedience. It's meant to be all of those things. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And I, I didn't bring my, I, my, I've forgotten my Bible at home, but if you look a little bit further in that passage in Matthew, uh, the context of that discussion in Matthew 22nd is when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're kind of challenging him on who he is, he's really making an argument for himself as the son of God or for the Messiah to be divine. Uh, this, this whole thing about love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength uh, the context of it is him sort of saying to to all of these people, listen, this this call to follow God is something that goes way, way back in your history. And and when you speak about David and, and the Messiah being the son of David, um, why then in Psalm uh, 142, or so, I think it's Psalm 142, why then does David sort of say, the Lord says to my Lord about the Messiah, Right? So all of a sudden, David is talking about the Messiah and saying, uh, calling the Messiah his Lord. So is the Messiah David's son? Or is the Messiah really God's son? 
And, and it's part of this argument that Jesus has something really amazing to show us in who he is and what, what he's done. Um, but for us, we, we, we have to process it at different levels. Last week we talked about that cry for Messiah, that we cry out for Messiah, that we come from a place of need, we sometimes come from a place of darkness, and we just have to finally get honest with ourselves and say, ah, I need you. I need you. And we cry out to him. Uh, the, the, what we're going to talk about today is a little bit more on the intellectual side. Uh, you guys have, how many of you have seen that, that movie, Case for Christ? How many of you are old enough to have read the book, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel? So it's something we're pretty familiar with, but uh, Lee Strobel uh, was an author, a, a writer uh, for a newspaper a number of uh, years ago uh, for the Chicago Tribune, is that correct? And uh, he um, was a skeptic. He was somebody who was like a very, very committed atheist. Somebody who absolutely did not believe that God had anything to say to him. Absolutely did not believe that God had anything to do that would change or affect his life in any way. Absolutely simply did not believe that God would exist. Well, he ran into a small problem when his wife became a Christian. Uh, That's going to begin to upset the apple cart in your family. And some of you know that dynamic where some of you are believers and your spouses aren't. But uh, his way of processing it was to begin to explore the evidence as a, in the same way he chases down a story as a journalist, to begin to look at the eyewitness accounts that are written in the scriptures around the events that happened around the time of Jesus and around his life. And so he approached Christianity with <coughs> lots of questions and lots of doubt and a high level of skepticism and ultimately came in that idea of he might be able to disprove the existence of God and he ended up proving the existence of God to himself and came to a place of faith and came to a place of connectedness with God. And that's the story uh, that's in part my story, but it's the story of a lot of other people. There's a brilliant book out by a guy named Mark Clark now, um, who's a Canadian pastor in Vancouver and they've launched a site in Montreal now and a site in Calgary. Brilliant sort of Canadian apologist who's really passionate about seeing uh, us understand who God is from a, an intellectual perspective. Uh, C.S. Lewis, of course, is, is another famous one. How many of you have read Mere Christianity? C.S. Lewis is another person who became a Christian from a place of skepticism. He came from a place of doubt and, and came to a place of belief. And even, I showed you this super geeky picture of me last week, that I had uh, that process in my life as well. It happened a little bit different for me because I grew up in a Christian home and I had a basic faith. I had this radical call to ministry when I was 17 years old that was absolutely sort of real and tangible for me, but then I had to explain it and wrestle down my doubts and and understand it. So 17 years old, uh, I'm reading the Quran, I'm reading uh, selections from the Bhagavad Gita, I'm reading... Uh, you know, people like Hawking and, and others to try to sort of wrestle down the big picture of this experience that happened to me. Is it real? Because I needed to be able to worship both with my heart and, and, and with my mind. So there's a process of, of, of wrestling these things down. So there's geeky me studying it all out, doing some homework. And I actually used to hide my Bible behind my homework because I would, my mom would like, get your homework done, like do your math. And I'd have my Bible hidden behind my math textbook. Like that's the level of Bible geek I was at. Um, but the question really came is, is how do I come to a place of authentic, worshipful connection with God? And that's the question that we're really asking this Christmas. 
in, in areas of my life where I am not released to worship, where I'm not free to worship, where I'm locked up, where I'm tied down, how do I come to a place of authentic connection with him? And so that's the, uh, the purpose of this series, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. We looked last week at Breaking Your Silence, The Cry for Messiah. This week we're looking at Zechariah's story, From Honest Out to Praise. Next week we're looking at Mary's story, Finding Acceptance and Purpose in Worship. Uh, the following week, we're looking at the story of the shepherds, awe, glory, and proclamation. Like, what an experience those guys had on a hill in, uh, in the area of Bethlehem when angels, like, landed on them around their campfire. Like, awe, glory, and proclamation, those great moments in worship. And then, of course, the story of the Magi, who just had a sense that there was something to discover and just took faithful steps on their journey. And so those are the ways that we're going to talk about worship over the next few weeks. But today we're looking at Zechariah's story, From Doubt to Praise, and let's just read uh, some se- selections of it. Uh, we start, of course, at the beginning of Luke uh, chapter 1, and we see that Luke is, like, this is sort of a boring part, and when you want to do an Advent readings, you're like, this is a little introduction to the story, we're not going to read this bit. But, but this is really the introduction, this is the framework through which we're meant to understand Luke's writing of the gospel story to us. And so let's just read this to get that context. It says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So Luke is writing a little bit uh, later on in the story, but the story of Jesus and all of these things that happened were eyewitness accounts to him. Like people who saw these events uh, actually uh, actually spoke to Luke. He, he interviewed them. He interviewed their parents and their grandparents to, to get the information. He says, with this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Luke was by training a physician. So when we look at the scriptures, we look at the Bible and these writings, this isn't just somebody like sitting in a room isolated and all by themselves, just kind of writing this stuff out sort of from memory or sort of how they imagined it happened. Uh, there's a process here of interview and, and checking it out and questioning and investigation. He says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Now just imagine this, the book of Luke was a letter written to one dude, right? And millions and millions and millions and millions of Christians have, have, uh, have read it and been impacted by it, and it's become the canon of scriptures. Just like what Harold was talking about earlier, you never know the power of one act of kindness and the impact that it can have. Luke wrote this uh, letter to his dude, Theophilus, and, and it came out. But what was interesting is that there's permission for us as believers to go through those processes of investigation. There's permission for you to doubt. There's permission for you to come with skepticism and to wrestle down these things. Uh, Richard Bauckham wrote an amazing book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. We've talked about it a number of times. And what he's done is he's sort of taken like to the next level, like far beyond what Lee Strobel had done, and looked at the eyewitnesses' account, accounts of what happened in the book of Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and said, okay, we're interviewing people, we're looking at these stories. Why in the book of Acts, when Luke says, so-and-so talked to so-and-so, and they talked to so-and-so, why is that level of detail in there? And he traces family lines, geography, and says, 
Well, they were actually, he was pointing people towards talking to eyewitnesses of the events. Luke is making a case for people to go and talk to the people uh, to see what really happened. He has a really comprehensive understanding of the relationships behind the scenes. Uh, but Bauckham says this, he says, young scholars learning their historical method often treat it as self-evident that the more skeptical they are toward their sources, the more rigorous will be their historical method. It has to be said over and over that historical rigor does not consist in fundamental skepticism towards historical testimony, but fundamental trust along with testing by critical questioning. So what Bauckham says, who's, who's investigated this stuff to the nth, is that as we read this story, as we look at it, there's something about us that needs to be saying, you know, millions of people have believed this. There's something in here for me. There, there's something rich in here for me. Like, like, maybe I can find it. So we go on to look at Zechariah's story. And the way, like, it's a really long story, as you can see, verses 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 25, and then on to 57 to 80. So we're looking at, at 80 verses. And how many of you think that we would maybe get lost if we just read them all? So we're just going to fill in some gaps as we go. Uh, the beginning, verses 5 to 10, said this, Zach and I were righteous, they were old, and they couldn't have a baby, right? We, I gave you that in the Advent reading. Righteous, old, couldn't have a baby. Zechariah was serving in the temple. Okay, we meet Zechariah in the temple. It says this, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. So just let's, let's paint the picture. Uh, Zechariah is a priest. He's in the temple. Uh, he's chosen by lot to go in there. So they, I don't know, they play dice, or they draw straws, or they have some way to draw names out of a hat. It's his job to go into the altar of incense and burn some incense in there. Part of the priestly duties, not everybody gets to go do that. It was his turn big deal for him. He goes in there in this moment of what we can only imagine is a moment of a sense of holiness, a sense of awe, a sense of wonder. And as he gets there, standing off to the right of the altar, there is the angel of the Lord, the angel Gabriel standing there. Like, what? Like, like come on. Like, he, I'm sure he changed his shorts. He had to change his shorts afterwards. Like, like right, you freak out when that happens. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what angels look like, but I'm pretty sure it's a change your shorts kind of moment, right? The angel is standing there, and, and he was afraid. He was gripped with fear. Imagine what, what that's like. Like, what are, are they 10 feet tall, maybe? I think they're muscly. I'm pretty sure they're not the little cherubs that go around with the bare bums and the wings coming out the backs that hang on the Christmas. Like, I'm sure that's not what made Zechariah gripped with fear. Right? If I see that little angel thing floating there, I'm not gripped with fear. I'm just like, that's kind of weird, man. <laughs> right? But this angel, I'm sure they were like, how many of you have read Frank Peretti's book, like old school books? I mean, some of you got to reread them. They're a bit nuts. But like the angels are like these great big muscly bronzed warriors with swords in their hands. Like that's sort of what I imagine an angel. That's the kind of dude that makes me want to hit the ground. It makes me filled with fear. So Zechariah meets this guy. The angel says, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. And, and Zechariah is still shaking. The adrenaline still pumping. 
Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you'll call him John. The angel, filling in another gap for another few verses, the angel goes on about John's amazing ministry. But you know when you have an experience like that where you encounter something, you know, you, you've got that adrenaline pumping in your system. You're still kind of gripped with fear. You're still trying to sort it out. And Zechariah's response to this amazing word from the angel is this. Well, how can I be sure of this? <laughs> uh, you know, like, how can I be sure? Are you sure? Are you sure you know what you're talking about? Like, did you get that? Like, did you get the right email? Uh, are, this isn't something you got off the internet, is it? Like, Angel, are you sure? Like, how can, how can I be sure of this? Like, show me some proof. Show me some evidence. I'm an old man. I'm old, and my wife is well along in years. He calls himself old, and my wife is just well, well along in years. <laughs> now, see, he's just, he's, like, he still has enough sense to kind of, like, massage that one a little bit. As he didn't say, I'm old, and my wife is really old. She's really, really, really old. No, she's just well along in years. Like, we're, we're not likely to have a baby. It's, it's not likely going to happen. And the angel says to him, let me show you my credentials. You're asking this question, but let me give you my credentials. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now, here's some evidence coming. And now you will be silent. And not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I imagine that kind of a little bit like, how many saw The Matrix? Like Neo, when his mouth gets automatic, gets kind of sewn shut. Like he's, he's sitting there, he's at the table, he's arguing with Agent Smith, saying, let's open your file, Mr. Anderson. Right? And, and, and he's like, how can you question when you are unable to speak? And Neo's mouth becomes closed and he's like, that's sort of what I imagine happening to Zechariah. Uh, the angel just says, I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you. I've been sent to tell you this good news, and now you'll be silent. There's a point at which our skepticism sometimes flies in the face of the realities that we observe. Isn't that true? Now, in Zechariah's case, and we're just going to process this a little bit, in, in Zechariah's case, the, the reality of his experience with his wife, his passion to have a child, all of that was overriding a reality that was in front of him. And what God does with us so often is he gives us an opportunity to be confronted by a new reality. The new reality of his beauty, the reality of his glory, the reality of who he is. And and I think what God was doing in in sort of shutting Zechariah's mouth was just giving him a little bit of time to process this. Right? Just a little bit of time. Like, okay, now stop with your doubts and just listen for a moment. And what Zechariah came to do was he came to a place, I think, of examination. 
a place of examining the new reality. Now I'm going to factor into my life, not just the fact that my wife and I are old and can't have kids. Now I've got to process this and factor into it the power of God in the midst of my life that seems like it's purely natural and now it's somehow supernatural. And God gives Zechariah just this gift of time and space. And we'll see a little bit more of that later. But uh, then we're just going to fill in a gap for another four verses. After this, the community was all there. Zacharias went home. Zechariah couldn't talk, so they did some other stuff. And then he got pregnant. I wonder what other stuff they did, right? Like, it's pretty clear. Like, let's be real here. They, they, he couldn't talk, so maybe he was just more attractive to her when he couldn't talk. I, just, I, I don't know. It's just maybe the experience for a lot of us. I don't know how that works, but, but uh, they, they, they managed to get it on. That's what I'm saying. And they were able to, uh, to conceive and, and have a child. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible, right? <laughs> and so we've got to fill in another gap, just a small gap for uh, 30 verse or 20 verses. Um, Elizabeth went on mat leave. And so took some time to visit with her cousin Mary. And we're going to talk about that next week, that, story, that amazing story of Elizabeth and Mary's meeting and, and, Eliz- and Mary telling Elizabeth the story of, uh, of the angel coming and speaking to her and what that did in her life. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, but it goes on uh, nine months later. The story jumps. Then they made signs. Oh, sorry. Uh, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. Excuse me. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Now, this is a bit of an astounding experience. For, for starters, for a woman to speak up at a circumcision ceremony in the Jewish culture was just something that wasn't happening at that time and space. But Zechariah had, was dumb, and so there was a provision made for them so that uh, she was able to speak on their behalf. Um, and, and what we see is that there's something amazing. There's a reason why Luke has told us this story in this way. Uh, in in this terms of the naming of the baby being John, you'll remember that the angel earlier told Zechariah that uh, the baby's name was going to be John, right? You're to call the baby John. What they're showing us here is that Zechariah didn't communicate that to Elizabeth. Yeah, he was mute. He he hadn't he hadn't communicated that to Elizabeth. But she, on her own, had sort of decided, um, and I mean, there's, this is actually one of the things that, that theologians argue about a little bit, but she, on her own, had decided that, yeah, John is, a, is, is the right name for this child. And she comes to him and says, her, his name is going to be John. Uh, they say to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. And so they, they're like, but, but Elizabeth, we don't believe you. We're skeptical of you, of your choice. You're, you're a woman. Why, why would we listen to you in this time and space? Let's hear what Zechariah has to say. So they made science to the father to find out what he would like to name the child. And this is the piece that is uh, the clue to understanding that bit about whether Zechariah had, had, um, 
had, uh, had explained it to Mary, why did they make signs to his father? He could hear her perfectly well, couldn't he? He couldn't. The clue in the text is that Zechariah is deaf. That it, whether it's something that he'd experienced from, from the whole of his life or whether it was something that the angel did for him at the same time, uh, the, the, the angel didn't only steak, uh, strike him dumb, dumb, but struck him deaf. And so imagine the isolation of this person in the story. He's been with the angel. The angel has told him all these things. He's been struck dumb, and he's been struck deaf. Imagine the sense of isolation where all he can do is basically observe with his eyes what's going on in his life. Imagine what that's like. He's in this home with, with Elizabeth, and, and, uh, and she's making him his, his meals. He's, he's stumbling about the house. He, he's not able to communicate very well. Um, he's not able to hear her communicate with him very well. Um, but he's slowly watching the reality unfold where his uh, life of not having a child is, is changing to a life of having a child. He, he begins to see his wife is... is starting to pack on the pounds a little bit like she, she's starting to she's starting to show a little bit she's she's ceasing her duty she's she's getting a little bit tired she's gone off to speak with her her cousin mary who's pregnant as well and she tries to somehow communicate this story with him through his inability to communicate but he doesn't really have a full understanding of what's going on in this place of silence he's just quietly coming to grips with the reality of what God is doing in his life. So they made signs to him to find out what he would like to name the child, and he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And all of a sudden, the dots are connected from the moment when the angel first spoke to him to now, where this is the moment for him where he has finally said what the angel told to him, that process of discovery and doubt and figuring it out and silence and turmoil has come through to the reality where he is now able to say that thing that the angel had told him. His name is John, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak praising God. And worship breaks through following confession. The confession of the new reality that God brought to him. And for so many of us, there's this moment where we finally have to say the thing we believe out loud. We finally just have to confess it. We have to say it. Now we, at times at, at OVV and we at the church in North America, when we lead people to Jesus and they come to, to faith, we're so cautious to give them space to carefully say that they're following Jesus. I mean, there's, uh, there's, how many of you have heard the old thing? Okay, every head bowed, every eye closed, and if you have accepted Jesus today, just raise your hand. We don't want anybody to know about it. <laughs> right? But that's not really what we're called to, to do, is it? We're called to a confession that is a saying out loud with our mouths the realities of what God has done. So what happened to Zechariah in those nine months of silence? Uh, uh, the writer Dallas Willard uh, t 
talks about a little bit, and I'm only going to unpack a little bit of it. It talks a little bit about this process of, of coming from a place of skepticism to examination and on to belief. But he says just this about straight skepticism. That's bought where Zechariah started. He says this. He says, we live in a culture that has for centuries cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. Right? If you're, I'm just, I'm a skeptic. Well, that's, you're really smart. Like, yeah, like if you're going to have any intellectual integrity to you at all, you absolutely must start from a place of skepticism. But Dallas Willard goes on and says this, you can be almost as stupid as a cabbage as long as you don't doubt. (laughs) Or sorry, as long as you doubt. The skepticism is a starting place, but there has to be something more, doesn't there? Skepticism by itself will only lead to belief in nothing. We must give students the ability to confidently examine the world and employ simple reasons so that they can evaluate and understand what they have seen. The skepticism, the disbelief of everything, uh, has to transition into an evaluation and a reasoning and a coming to understanding. And that's my belief of what was happening uh, for uh, Zechariah in that time, is that he transitioned from straight-up skepticism to a place of wrestling with his belief, to a place of, of evaluating, to a place of reasoning. Okay, my wife is starting to show now. Something's happening here. Right? There's a reality. And along with that is beginning to believe, not just that he was about to have a baby, but to believe all that the angel had told him about the coming of John and the coming of Messiah, right? So Zechariah had space and time to process. He had the slow unfolding of a new understanding of reality. And he had that moment where you finally have to say it. And that's the turning moment for us. Where examination uh, turns into acceptance. And, And for so many of us in so many areas of our lives, maybe for you, you're trying to examine the evidence and, and to find out, does God actually heal today? When I lay hands on the sick, does not matter? Because for most of us, it's not just do we believe in God and does he exist or not. It's do we believe a specific thing about God? For you, it's maybe do you believe that God really loves you personally? Maybe it's do you believe that God has a real purpose for your life and for your family? Uh, maybe it's do you believe when I lay hands on the sick uh, are they going to be healed is God going to use me prophetically is God going to call me to the mission field is God going to uh, use me as an evangelist whatever it is there's that process of examination that ultimately (coughs) has to lead to acceptance it has to get not only to our heads but to our hearts and, you know, it's in that moment of, uh, of acceptance where, for Zechariah and for us, where praise comes. And isn't that where we all long to live? In a place of praise. I know who God is. I know he loves me. I know he's going to use me. I know he has a purpose for me. I know he wants me to lay hands on the sick. I know he wants me to follow him. I know he wants me to tell uh, people about Jesus. I, I accept it. I, I'm in. I'm finally in. 
Praise you, God. And Zechariah breaks forth in this incredible song of praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people to redeem them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And ultimately, Zechariah's praise is centered around salvation. And that's what it is for us, too. We come from places of doubt and skepticism. Um, but God brings us to a place of acceptance and to a place of praise. Uh, for me, that happened uh, in high school um, where it had, a, I shared earlier my story of having had this, this incredible encounter with God where I finally figured out that, or where he finally showed me that he was real, my sort of almost angelic encounter with God. But I remember, uh, you know, the the summer after that, it was, I, I haven't really talked about this part of my story very much, but uh, Dad, you and Mom, I think had taken Amber off to Saskatchewan for some thing, visiting family, and uh, and it was in that sort of couple of weeks while you guys were away when I was supposed to be looking after the garden. Remember that story? Mom and Dad went away, and I was supposed to look after their garden, and uh, I had all kinds of amazing plants to look after it, potato plants and tomatoes and all of that incredible stuff and and I I I didn't look after the garden but I read I read and I read and I read in the quietness of that house actually when I got went out to the garden afterwards they were coming back the next day two weeks later and I was supposed to look at the garden and 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 I was like okay so I got to go out I got to pull some weeds here water it I got to do something and I went out to the garden and it was just full of weeds like I could not even see the vegetables for the weeds the thing was just completely (laughs) overgrown because I'd been in my room just reading and wrestling with trying to find an intellectual framework for faith and uh and my solution of course to that was I just went and got the rototiller and tilled the whole thing under (laughs) yeah that's my guess my level of gardening. That's still about my level of gardening today. Like, we can't deal with all these weeds. I don't have time. They're coming home, but we can at least make it look neat. Uh, so that's, that's what we did. We, we, yeah. So, so the, the killing of that garden was, for me, uh, the beginning of, of wrestling through those moments. Like, like, I just, I had to know. Like, I had to know. I read Mere Christianity. Uh, I read, again, more of the Quran, like different things, like read a broad spectrum of stuff. But I had to know. But here's what happened afterwards. You know, that fall when I went back to school. Um, and, you know, my, the, the youth group or the youth thing that we'd been leading over here, right, right down there and we're the shop rooms now here in Carlton Place High School. This is the second church I've pastored that meets in this space, I always say. Uh, but I, we were leading this inter-school Christian fellowship group with Craig and Amber, and Anna was coming, and and uh, so we've been in here for for a long time, and uh, and and we were meeting together and and praying, and and you know it was finally that fall where, where I said, you know what, there, it just has to be more than just us meeting in a quiet little circle, talking about if God's real. There has to be something more, and I and I felt, you know, kind of led to to take it one step further with, uh, with worship. And we began to worship together, like bad worship. I brought the guitar before in the past, but we began to lead loud, bad worship in the cafeteria with only three chords. 
But there was something that was powerful that happened about that because uh, the doubt and the skepticism and the wrestling turned into an action. It turned into praise. And it was bad praise. It was musically awful. It was embarrassing. But it was praise in that space. And, and people came. And so that's my hope for all of us as, as, as people in this community is that, you know, whatever area of doubt that you're wrestling with in, in your life, like, don't, don't just be skeptical and stay there. Go to the place of reasoning. Go to the place of examination. Go to the place of reading. Begin to gain traction towards that area that you feel like is closed off in your faith to you. Maybe it's your ability to share Jesus with a friend and, and you don't feel like you have that. Maybe it's being able to be free to worship and, and you've never been free to just put your hands in the air and worship God passionately. Maybe it's about a deeper commitment to Christian community. Maybe it's about getting to a home church or praying for someone for the first time. Whatever area of your faith has been locked off to you, <coughs> begin to process through that skepticism and doubt to a place of hopefully praise, a place of hopefully release, hopefully freedom. Because I promise every one of us there is so much more for us in our relationship with Jesus than we've experienced so far. Even James. Even James. There's more for him too, right? There's just so much more. Let's just stand for a moment. For every one of us here who's wrestling with, with doubt, we're wrestling with the reality of our experience that's uh, st always will be really an imperfect reflection of your glory and who you want us to be, Lord. But, but with, with wrestling with the more. For all of us who are wrestling with the, God, could you do this in my life? God, do you want more for me? Is there more for me to experience? Would you let that skepticism, that questioning that was in the heart of Zechariah, uh, transition to a moment of listening, a moment of examination, a moment of reasoning with you? And if anybody is here trying to wrestle with God, do you even exist, or could I follow you, or will I become a Christian? Would you let that reasoning, that skepticism, that doubt, transition from beyond skepticism to the reasoning again? Call us to do something proactive. Call us to do something that goes forward. And we'll discover that the reality of who you are is far greater than we'd imagine. Would you come by your power and reveal yourself to your people?
Don't let any area of our life just be doubt that goes nowhere. Let it be examination and exploration. Call us to journey with you, Lord Jesus. That we would come to a place of worship, that we would come to a place of praise. Uh, we ended this way last week, but let's sit, just sing this again. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Amen. Have an awesome week. God bless you.